This morning, I would like to help you to make sense of the whole Bible. That's right, not false advertising. I want to help you make sense of the whole Bible, which is a big task, I know, because I think of the Bible as more like a library than a book, right? Um, in fact, we almost talk about it as if it's a library. We say the Bible, a book, has 66 books, which doesn't make a lot of sense um, to an outsider, because again, we're thinking about the Bible almost like a library. 66 books, last time I checked, those 66 books contained 1,189 chapters, 31,102 verses. So, how do we make sense of the whole thing? If you're thinking Jesus, you're not wrong, but it's a little bit more complicated than that, okay? It's a little bit more complicated. Today, by looking at two places that relate to Jesus... I can't answer all of your questions about the Bible, but I can at least help you along the way to making, to making a lot more sense of the whole. There are two places that are important places. There are places you've heard of, you're familiar with, but if we can understand how they, how they fit in the Bible storyline and how they relate to Jesus, I promise it will help you to make sense of the 66. And those places are Bethlehem and Egypt. Bethlehem and Egypt. If we can understand how those two places fit in the Old and New Testament, how they fit in relationship to Jesus, we're we're making a whole lot of traction when it comes to understanding the whole. Okay? You ready to go? This morning it's going to be Matthew chapter 2, first 15 verses. And we're going to break it down into the two significant places. First we're going to talk about Bethlehem. Then we're going to talk about Egypt. And uh, the punchline is really at the end, so I can't wait. I'll go really fast. Or not. If I get excited along the way, I'll slow down. But it, 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 it all comes back together again at the end, I think. So let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, we have this narrative text, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 15, starting with Bethlehem. If you'd follow along with me in verse 1, it says, Now... After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now right away, When I read those words, now after Jesus was born, I'm hooked. If if I'm being an active reader, and if I'm being an active listener, now, now, in time and space, now after Jesus is born, well, being an active reader, I'm remembering chapter 1, you shall name him Jesus, 121, why? Because he will... Talk to me. Good job. Good, right? I'm encouraged. Because he will save his people. He will save his people from their sins. Name him Jesus. Yahweh saves. Name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So when I read chapter 2 verse 1, Now when Jesus was born, this is huge. Now the one who's going to save his people from their sins, now when, when he is born? That's, that's quite the now. That, this, is, this is a huge, huge, one of the, the hugest 
to sound weird. One of the hugest things to ever happen in human history. One of them. Now when that one is born, wow. And he's born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Again, significant time in history. We'll talk more about that later. We'll talk more about Bethlehem of Judea later as well. And the wise men come. They want to know. They want to worship. They want to worship him. This is a massively big deal for him to be born. Now, if you weren't with us last time or haven't been with us recently, for him, for Jesus to be born, to, for it to be Jesus the Christ, he is Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the king, Jesus the long-awaited one, the long-awaited um, uh, one who's going to deliver, who's going to protect, who's going to provide. Uh, he's the one who came in the line of David. I keep reviewing this, but I'll keep doing it. He's the one who would, had been promised in Second Samuel chapter 7, who would rule and reign forever something David himself couldn't fulfill. He's that one. He's that one. Born, real time, real space. When Herod, Herod the Great was ruling. That is significant. Very, very significant. Significant. Now, why do the wise men go to Jerusalem? Well, that makes sense since Jerusalem is the capital so if you're going to go to Israel and if they're coming from Babylon or wherever it is they're coming from, uh, would have been, that's, a, that's a pretty good guess where they're coming from. So they would show up and where do you go first? You go to the capital city. Okay, Bethlehem is some five miles down the road, if you will, uh, Ju- on the Judean side, not the Samaritan side. It's the region. So it's, it's a, we, they wouldn't call it a suburb, <laughs> an outlying town. Um, a feeder town, maybe we would call it, since it means house of bread. It literally would be a feeder town. But I digress. Um, <laughs> that's where they show up. And they're going to go. He's born in Bethlehem. Now, it does say under Herod the Great, and we need to say a couple of things about Herod the Great. If you ever go to Israel, and some of you have been there, by the way, this is my infomercial, next Sunday after the service at 1145, we're going to have a half hour meeting about going to Israel next February. So it'll be in the library. So if you're interested, that's next Sunday. I didn't realize before the first time I went to Israel how significant Herod is. I mean, Herod, Herod is the man, okay? There wouldn't be that much to see in Israel in one sense if it weren't for Herod. Herod the Great, the greatly diabolical one, the sinister one, the egomaniac times a bazillion megalomaniac. I mean, Herod is a piece of work, okay? He is a bad dude, and and he's going to want Jesus executed is what he's going to do, and he'll spare no expense to have it done. Herod the Great, though, he's great because of his... Either his engineering abilities, his architectural abilities, or at least those who are in his, who work for him, right? To get the job done. Absolutely amazing to see. To go to Masada, which is all done, done up by Herod in the view of the Dead Sea. Uh, Herod had some 15 palaces, swimming pools in all of them. Okay? I mean, this is, this is inland kind of stuff. And, and it wasn't fed by the Dead Sea. Herod is something. This is this is according to the this is according to the World Heritage Center. Okay, so this isn't from some conservative Christian Bible scholar. 
okay? This is put out by the UN. <laughs> Not that they're known for telling the truth, but anyway. <laughs> so, uh, just a general source, okay, from the, from the interwebs. Um, th- this is regarding Masada, that it could collect enough runoff water from a single day's rain to sustain life for a thousand people over a period of two to three years. I wouldn't even believe it. I don't even know if I do believe it. Not written by a Bible believer, just written by somebody saying, Masada, Herod, the ingenuity, absolutely staggering to the mind. I'm going to issue a challenge right now to anybody who wants to race me up Masada, put your money where your mouth is. I'll be training for it. Will you? (laughs) They think I'm kidding. (laughs) If you go to the Herodium, which is his, I think, summer palace, he wants it elevated so he can see further, and it's not elevated very much, and so he just has him build a mountain. And it's amazing architecturally. Um, Amazing to see what he had built there. His pool there, which looks to me like it's in the middle of the desert, maybe there's something I don't know about groundwater, um, 70 meters long by 45 meters and 3 meters deep. So how did they get the water there? I don't know. Quite the guy. And maybe we know Herod best because Herod is the one who has the temple built for the Jews. Okay? Amazing. And the temple you will see if you're there is post-destruction. But you'll learn enough about archaeology when you're there to know which stones are the Herodian stones, the ones that have the framing around it, and it's absolutely dumbfounding. Herod was great. God has his son, Jesus, born during Herod the Great's reign. And Herod the Great wants Jesus killed because Herod doesn't want to have any threats or rivals. Because Herod not only was great, he thought himself great. Okay? So it's during that time. I stress it all the time. I'm going to stress it again. The birth of Jesus isn't some uh, ahistorical made up in somebody's mind because some sort of weird vision. No, It's now when he's born, during the reign of Herod, okay? Real time, real space. Not in a galaxy far, far away. Here we go, okay? Diabolical genius Herod. Verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Now I have a question for you just momentarily. He's troubled, we get it. What's so troubling to us as readers when we, when we read the next part? And all Jerusalem with him. That's troubling because it tells us something about the spiritual pulse of the Jews. They're the ones, and we're going to see, they know the Bible verses. They, 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 they know the, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They've been saying, oh, this is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for a deliverer. We're waiting for a Messiah. We're all about it. Our whole calendar year, all of our worship is designed to anticipate this. We can't wait for it to happen. And now it seems to be happening. Herod's troubled and all Jerusalem is troubled. 
It tells us they're not in a good spiritual state. And by the way, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that's not out of the ordinary. It's not out of the ordinary to learn about Israel's spiritual infidelity. In fact, it's more normal than not. It's why there needs to be an ultimate faithful son. All of this is coming. It's so cool to see how all this stuff comes together. Verse 4 says, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, so all the Bible experts, all the leaders representing the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the ultimate King, fulfilling the Davidic covenant, was to be born. They told him, in Be- now they're going to quote, they're going to quote from Micah 5. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among all the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You guys have any Bible insights for me? So I can kind of figure out what's going on? Oh, sure we do. They don't even have to think twice. Bethlehem might be an insignificant place. The house of bread, house of grain, they produce the grain. But it's prophetically significant because it's where Messiah is supposed to be born. We should also know that it's also significant because it's where Israel's formerly greatest Messiah ever was born. And that would be whom? The greatest king of Israel would be David. David is born in Bethlehem, and surely that's not just good luck. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 12. David, the special anointed Messiah of Israel, he was, lowercase m. And now, where's the ultimate deliverer, forever reigning Messiah king to be born, the one who's in the line of David? Same place as David. That's where he's going to be born. See, I told you, if we understand a couple of places in the Bible, we won't have all of our questions answered, but it starts to kind of fill things in a little bit and help us to understand, oh, that's where David was from. The Messiah has to come in the line of David, the ultimate Messiah. Oh, he's born in the same place. Oh, that's where he's supposed to be born. Even the Jews know their Bible well enough to know this. It's almost like there's one divine author behind the whole thing. It's almost like there's a plan and purpose that started before the beginning of time as we know it. Fascinating. Okay, let's keep going in verse 7. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, my question for you is, again, Maybe if we know the rest of the story, why would he want to know when, when they first saw the star? Well, as we're going to see, maybe next week, he's got to figure out the timing here. He, he has to figure out who, who he needs to, to, to take care of. He's got the diabolical plan, no threats to me. He's going to end up having all sorts of little boys executed if they're born within a certain time frame. He wants to know when the star first showed up. How long has this been going on? How many do I have to kill? But we'll see that a different day. 
Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And if he was talking like this to the wise men, he would have turned around and looked at his cohorts and, right? He would have winked. He's up to no good from the very beginning. Oh, I want want to come worship him. I want to pay homage as well. I want to acknowledge his greatness. And we know he doesn't really want to do that. Then verse 9 says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. I'm going to put my finger there just for a second and point out the obvious, which I tried to point out last week and probably the week before. That's not natural. That's not ordinary. That's not the kind of thing that happens every day. And that's kind of the point, okay? The Messiah, the one who will save his people from their sins. We shouldn't expect things to be business as usual. I'm just not one of those people that say, well, unless I could see that replicated next week, I don't think I could believe in such things. I think if everything that's happening could be replicated next week, I couldn't believe in such things. This is not the ho-hum, humdrum, seen this before, done this before event. The whole thing is designed to be extraordinary. So what accompanies it, a reasonable person would expect extraordinary things to accompany it. Let's keep moving. Finger lifted. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I like that. Right? And that's just like my kind. That'll preach. That's how I feel when I'm preaching, right? They, 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 they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, right? It's just bubbling over. They couldn't be more excited about this little charismatic experience. Verse 11 says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. First thing I'm thinking is, is, is as this happens, first thing I'm thinking, among other things, is, They're the Gentiles. The Jews are nervous and troubled and don't want any part of the one who they're supposed to be excited about. And the pagan wise men, they're doing the right thing, right? The unbelievers are doing the right thing. Uh, Sometimes translators translate the, the, the wise men as astrologers. I mean, these, these are the people who, whose stock and trade is astrology. Um, Interpreting dreams. Um, they, 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 would have been, they would have been like Daniel. Okay? Think Daniel in Babylon. Interpreting dreams. Wise men. Okay? And, and remember too, sometimes unbelievers can know amazing things. Because of natural law. And now in this case, not just because of natural law, but also because of supernatural things being revealed to them. Because this is a unique kind of special event. When we sing the song about pagan wise men, I always like it because I think it probably puts a burr in some people's saddle. And I think that's a sanctified burr in your saddle. Because pagan wise men, why, why are we admiring pagan wise men? I always thought they were the good guys. 
Well, they're the bad guys that God is using to do the right thing and acknowledge the good one, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's fascinating. Pagan wise men. Gentiles are doing the right thing. The Jews are doing the wrong thing. Cats and dogs living together. It's total chaos. It's not that. But it should strike you as wrong. But Jesus is going to be the Savior of the world. Not just Jews, also Gentiles. And there will be Jewish people who come around. Love that. I'm also thinking when I read this, if you... How many, how many of you have already put your Christmas decorations down? Overachievers, you're those people. Ours aren't even up yet. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, if, if yours are still up um, and you have a nativity and maybe you're going to do it today, put everything away except the wise men. Because the wise men are not at the barn. Right? They visit at a house. They visit later. Okay? Hmm. Couldn't help get that in there. Leave the wise men up for a little while. Now, if they're still up come Easter, you have a problem. Um, you're those neighbors. Um. <laughs> then opening, this is verse 11 also, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts Gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Three items of value, right? Maybe some for medicinal purposes, some because it's for the fragrance, obviously, but they're all, they're all valuable. Um, some Christians have speculated and said one represents his, his sovereignty as king, one represents his divinity, one represents his suffering. The Bible doesn't say that. All those things are true about him. Um, Back to the nativity thing, though. If I ever design a nativity, I probably won't. But if I ever do, I'm going to have 30 wise men. Because we can be as confident that there were 30 of them as we can that there were three of them. Tradition says three. Three kings. They're not three kings. There are three wise men. I know it messes up the song. We three kings. Da, da, da. I don't even know the other words, but um, there were wise men. They brought three gifts. There might have been 3,000 of them. Don't know. There might have been three. But I'm just enough of a contrarian. I'll, if I have three, well, we buy the set and it comes with three, I'm going to put one away. Uh, <laughs> just to get us off. <laughs> or buy two and put up six. None of that has anything to do with the point of this passage. But the pagans are on to something. They're doing the right thing. They're responding the right way to Jesus. They're worshiping Him. We don't even know what kind of worship it was. He's the greatest king. He's wonderful. Let's pay homage to Him because He's unique and special. Or maybe they knew more. Maybe they knew less. I don't know. But they knew enough to know we're on our faces. He's special. We bring expensive gifts. And it's taken us a long time to get here. He's extraordinary. But even if they don't know much more, it's masterful the way Matthew includes this event. It's masterful the way the Lord includes this event as something significant. Because at least they know enough to bow down and not try to kill him. 
I'm a, I'm a fan of these guys. Let's move on to verse 12, and then we'll move on to another place. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So there is supernatural revelation given to them because they're warned uniquely and specially to not go back to Herod. You ready to move on? Let's go to the next one. This is perfect providence, by the way, how Matthew's unfolding because we started Matthew ready for Christmas and now we're after Christmas so they can come to the house. So good. Now let's go to Egypt. Now let's learn about Egypt. Verse 13 says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. I wrote in my margin, not to worship him like he claimed. And he arose, or and he rose, verse 14 says, and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Quite the journey. I asked Siri today how many miles it is from Bethlehem to Elat, Israel, which is on the border of Egypt. I know it's far because it took a long time in a bus when I did it. I didn't know how far. Siri objected and said she couldn't give me any maps regarding Bethlehem. So let's talk about the Palestinian conflict. No, we're not going to do that. But, but it has to do with that. Because when I said, Siri, tell... I don't, want, I don't want my iPad to... Anyway, um, or any of your phones to answer. When I asked how far it was from Jerusalem to Elat, again, border of Egypt, it was 194 miles by automobile. Maybe 140-some as far as the crow flies. It's a, it's a journey if that's the route. So it's a, it's a long journey. It's a significant journey. It's not a day's journey. And they weren't on a 50-passenger bus. So they're going to journey to Egypt. And what we're going to see is bad things by bad people like Herod, God is going to sovereignly use because God uses what people intend for evil, to quote Joseph. What, not this Joseph, the other Joseph. Probably just lost you, sorry. To quote Genesis, God uses what people intend for evil. God uses at times for good. So this is all by divine design. He's going to use a bad Herod the Great to act according to his nature, which is bad, but it's actually going to do something good to bring about fulfilled prophecy when it comes to leaving Egypt. Did you get that? If not, let's keep reading. You'll catch on. Okay? Let's keep moving. It says in verse 15, and and remained there, and they remained there, until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Here we go. Out of Egypt I called my son. Use bad to bring about good. Fulfilled prophecy would be the good. Okay? 
now. We need to spend some time on that last verse because it's so significant in light of trying to understand the whole. It will really help you, okay? Now, but, but if Matthew, I have to tell you, if Matthew were living in the 21st century and he were a professor at certain universities, at this point in time, he would have to issue a trigger warning, okay? Because some of you might be triggered. He doesn't issue a trigger warning. He thinks this is good and positive. But what you learn from the implications of this just might mess with your theology a bit. I hope in a good way but it might be unsettling, like, oh, I saw a ghost. I don't mean to do that to you, okay? But if you stop and think about the implications, out of Egypt I've called my son. It's to fulfill that prophecy. <laughs> the implications are pretty big, and they're big when it comes to helping you understand the whole Bible and even interpret the Bible. You ready? You've all been warned. I can't believe you didn't think that was funny that I talked about the trigger warning. <sighs> if you would have laughed, I would have said, that. and we do have a safe space. It's the church down the street. Never mind. Or they won't tell you this. <sighs> next, next service, I'll change it. It'll be better, like I keep saying. That was a nice thing about having two services, right? Um, I felt bad for all, all the people that come to the first service because it was just a dry run. Um, but I digress. This tells us some important things. This tells us that if we were thinking, because he's going to, if we were thinking that this Jesus being threatened so they had to seek protection thing, that, that kind of reminds me of Moses with Israel. If you were thinking that, I actually think we're going to discover some things that would cause you to say, you know what, you're probably onto something. You're probably onto something. Because if we look up Hosea 11.1, 1, which he's quoting, the son is Israel. Delivered out of Egypt, we call it the Exodus. It's on purpose. It's on purpose that there's an Exodus connection here. And so I think it's on purpose that there's, even in my mind, oh, well, Moses threatened, God protected him so that he would be able to be um, good on behalf of his people. Oh, God protects the son. He's going to do good and do the right thing on behalf of his people. They're not identical, but there's a similarity. So here's my question for you. I already gave away the answer, but just play along if you would. When it says, out of Egypt I've called my son, okay, what do you think Egypt means? If you think Egypt, you're probably right, right? No doubt it's Egypt. So Egypt is Egypt. Out of Egypt, I, who's the I talking? God, God the Father. Clearly it's God the Father. You're doing great so far. So out of Egypt, Egypt means Egypt. I, I, God the Father, I have called my son. Who do you think the son is referring to in Matthew 2? Jesus. Good job. Good job, good job, good job. I feel like a great pastor, okay? But if you look up Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt, Egypt means Egypt, I means God the Father, same thing, I have called my son, without any question, no debate whatsoever, everybody agrees, couldn't be, as, it's as clear as clear, it's not Jesus, it's Israel. It's Israel. Okay? Sure enough, 
Israel is referred to in the Old Testament at times as God's son. Okay? So he delivers them out of Egypt. Think, think Exodus. Okay? But now Matthew, Matthew writing, let me help you here, under inspiration, one ultimate author. So this is the right interpretation. I'm not just making this up. Ultimately, it finds fulfillment in the Son, Jesus. The greater Son. So we're not crazy people when we say, you know what, Israel is a type. Israel's not the ultimate endgame. Jesus is the ultimate endgame. And we're not crazy to conclude that. There's a reason we call ourselves Christians. Okay? And you go, wow. It was all designed ultimately to be about Him? Yeah, all designed ultimately to be about Him. Types and shadows, anticipating, waiting, right? So we talk about this all the time, but I, I want you to see it's right here. I'm not making it up. John chapter 2, the temple, and Jesus says the temple is me, ultimately. Types and shadows, substance fulfillment, it's him. Um, in the Old Testament, we have the Passover lamb. First Corinthians, inspired interpretation. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Pictures. God apparently loves pictures, anticipation. He has a plan that's unfolding, all anticipating, waiting. And the substance, Paul says, under inspiration, belongs to Christ. It was all about him. It was all about Him in anticipation. So good, so wonderful, so helpful. You might not believe this. I hope you do. I hope you do. Now, if you want the end game, so if I have a friend who would disagree with me about reading the Old Testament in light of the New I understand if he wants or she wants the end game to be Israel, why they don't want me to read the old and light of the new, because I'm going to Matthew chapter 2 every time. Every time. I would suggest to you, like I've been suggesting and will continue to suggest, we should read the new and light of the old, and we should read the old and light of the new. Especially because we believe in one ultimate divine author, Many human authors with a plan and a purpose that begins before time begins and it's unfolding. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. Hosea 11.1. 1. Jesus is the ultimate son. Israel's not the ultimate son. Now, by the way, I am going to read into the old when I read it and say all of this is part of a plan. This history is going somewhere. This is amazing, amazing, amazing. And again, I have friends who I respect and love, and they'll say, you should never do it that way. And I keep saying the same thing I'm saying to you. So, whose interpretation should I trust then? Yours? I have an inspired interpretation. I think I'll go with Matthew too. By the way, this is the way Christians have read the Bible for a long, 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 long time until Christians started not believing in supernatural things. 
and being trained in how to do hermeneutics by unbelievers. Got to read the Bible like it's a natural book. No one ultimate author in control of the whole with an ultimate plan and an ultimate purpose. We have to use enlightenment hermeneutics. I say enlightenment and schmeitenment. Many good things happen as a result of the enlightenment. But to deny supernaturalism was not one of the good things. There were abuses in the name of supernaturalism. But I'm going to join Christians who were before then and after then who read the Bible like it's a divinely inspired book. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Oh, Israel was a type. Jesus is the antitype. Let's worship him. When we go to Israel, by the way, that's why we go and it's a historical tour to learn about the things that Jesus did there. And it's amazing and awesome to look at all of the types and to see them as types. Here's the temple in anticipation of Jesus coming and being the temple. And then there's going to be a group over here of Zionists. And I'm going to say, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. And it's all about the future temple being built and they're going to have animal sacrifices. Isn't the Lord amazing? And I'm going to say, isn't Jesus amazing? He's the Passover lamb. Don't do reverse. We do progressive revelation, not regressive revelation. Jesus is the one. He's the end game. He's the ultimate. We're waiting for him to return not to do animal sacrifices and go back to types and shadows. By the way, one more thing we can probably do rather quickly. Yes, we can. You don't even have to go to the New Testament to do this. It's actually built in the DNA of the Old Testament. Okay, So I don't want to take Pastor Mike Holloway's thunder from him, but if you're going to his class, the Isaiah class, and he and I have talked about this before, we think the same way you're going to get it there, so maybe you shouldn't go to his class. Isaiah himself is already doing this. He doesn't do it with son, per se, like we're doing it here. He does it with servant. And you have, in Isaiah, servant is whom? Early on. Take a guess. It's Israel. Israel, my servant. In fact, he says, Israel, my servant. Israel is the servant of God. And the more you work your way through the book of Isaiah, the servant is personified. Oh, you get into the 40s and 40, chapter 42, and then you all know, drum roll, Isaiah 53, suffering servant is Israel? <laughs> that, that's what Jews say. That's what Ben Shapiro would say. <laughs> no, suffering servant, suffering servant is personified. It's Jesus, according to the book of Acts. We know that it's a person. We know that it's Jesus. Acts chapter 8, I think. So even, I, you don't have to go to the New Testament. You can just read the Old Testament carefully. Servant is a nation. Servant is Israel. Oh, and they're unfaithful. They don't get the job done. Ultimate servant, faithful to the very end, gets the job done. It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The true and ultimate servant. It's right there. It's absolutely amazing. But it will ruin you for life. Because you'll start to interpret the Bible as a Christian. Ready for this? Like a Christian. It's exciting. It's very exciting.
Two places. If you understand something about Bethlehem in the old, you'll go, oh, that's where David was born. Also, Messiah is supposed to be born there. Oh, David, ultimate David in the line of David. That makes sense. I'm on to something. Oh, also understand Egypt. Oh, Egypt, Exodus, Egypt, oppression. What's going on there? Baby killed. No, but saved, but not perfect, not a perfect leader. Oh, Psalm 95. 40 years in the wilderness, characterized by infidelity, not fidelity. And next week, I think it is, when we, no, maybe in a couple weeks, we get into chapter 4, Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, fidelity. He is the true son, the faithful son. It is amazing. We're going to have fun, I promise. We're going to read Matthew like a Christian book too. I hope it helps you. Ready to go? Okay. No, I'm, I'm glad some of you say you're not ready to go. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is what we could never be. He's what Israel could never be. Thank you that he is the ultimate servant, that he is the ultimate son, that we can look to him and find ultimate rest. Help us to read our Bibles like Christians so that we can honor you. Help us to not be like the people in 2 Corinthians 3 who read the Bible with spiritual blinders on because we can understand because of the power of the Spirit, because of the new covenant, because of your word. We're grateful for these things. We're grateful for your grace and your kindness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.